You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 27 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. This week will be part two of our coverage of Jefferson Davis's life story. In this show, we'll go from his return from the Mexican War in 1847 up to early 1861 and Davis's election as the provisional president of the Confederate States of America. And the last thing we'll look at in this episode is the formation of his cabinet. At the end of the last show, Jefferson Davis had just returned from Mexico as a wounded war hero. Not only was he immensely popular in his home state, but his leadership of the Mississippi Rifles during the recent conflict had earned him a national reputation as a a successful military commander. And so in 1847, Governor Brown of Mississippi, a Whig, bowed to overwhelming pressure and appointed Jefferson Davis, a Democrat, to fill that vacant U.S. Senate seat that we mentioned previously. And then in short order, in January 1848, the state legislature voted and elected Davis to finish the two years left in the recently deceased Jesse Spite's unexpired term. Two years later, when that term did expire, Davis was re-elected, and so he was a senator during the uproar surrounding the Compromise of 1850. Davis gained wide recognition as a leading spokesman for Southern rights when he took an active role in the volatile debates of 1850-1851, when no less a luminary than Henry Clay accused Davis of lecturing the Senate. Davis, like most Southern Democrats, opposed the Compromise of 1850, particularly the admission of California as a free state, Davis's displeasure with the compromise ran so deeply that he was willing to discuss the possibility of secession, but he didn't necessarily advocate it, fearing it would result in bloodshed, and so he believed secession was the last alternative the South ought to turn to. While Davis and other Southern Democrats who shared his thinking were branded disunionist, it can be argued that he was really a strong nationalist at heart, like his boyhood hero, Andrew Jackson. But Jefferson Davis sincerely believed in a pro-slavery reading of the Constitution and felt that if the North would not respect such an interpretation, then the South was justified in seeking to preserve its rights outside the Union. And then in 1851, something unexpected happened. As Stephen Woodworth explains in his book, Jefferson Davis and His Generals, quote, The leadership of the state Democratic Party approached him in hopes he could bail them out of a predicament. The Democratic candidate had dropped out of the race for governor. Would Jefferson Davis, the ever-popular war hero, 
be willing to resign his Senate seat and become the standard bearer for the Democratic Party in the gubernatorial election. The race was a forlorn hope, even with Davis's war record, and he knew it, so it was a dubious honor that the state Democratic Party sought to bestow on the war hero. Despite the hopeless nature of the campaign he was asked to undertake, Davis believed it was his duty to step into the breach. Accordingly, he resigned his Senate seat and gamely entered the race for governor. Predictably, he lost, though in a surprisingly close election. Thereafter, he returned to Briarfield, and for a time, it appeared his public life was over. End quote. It was during this time that a son, Samuel Emery, was born to Jefferson and Verena. Named after Jefferson's father, he was born in July 1852, but died in June 1854 of an undiagnosed disease. After Samuel's death, the Davises would have five more children, but only one, Margaret Howell, would marry and raise a family of her own. Margaret, by the way, was born in February 1855. And then Jefferson Davis Jr. was born in January 1857. He would die in 1878 at the age of 21 during a yellow fever epidemic that killed 20,000 people in the South. Next was Joseph Evan, born April 1859. He died during the war in 1864 as the result of a skull fracture that occurred when he fell from a balcony at the Confederate White House in Richmond. Another son, William Howe, was born December 1861. He was named after Verena's father and died of diphtheria in October 1872. And then Verena Ann, known as Winnie, was born in June 1864, just after little Joseph's accidental death. She died in September 1898 at the age of 34, having never wed. One of the things that's often pointed out in connection with the Davis and Lincoln children is that both families lost young sons during the war. The Davises lost five-year-old Joseph as a result of that tragic fall, and the Lincolns lost their 11-year-old son Willie in 1862 after he fell ill, probably with typhoid fever. Well, sad for both families, but all of that is still in the future in terms of the podcast, so let's turn our attention back to early 1853. That's when Jefferson Davis joined newly elected President Franklin Pierce's administration as Secretary of War. And, just as an aside, but back in those days, the fact that there was a Secretary of War didn't mean the U.S. was necessarily actually engaged in the war. Back then, it was simply a cabinet position, similar to what we have today with the Secretary of Defense. Well, at first, Davis was reluctant to say yes when Pierce asked him to join his cabinet, but he eventually accepted the position and he gained a reputation as one of the country's most able and innovative secretaries of war. Davis led an aggressive effort to update and revitalize the military. He instituted a series of improvements for West Point, aimed at making the place as good as any military academy in the world. He sought to increase the strength of the regular army, and also worked hard to increase the pay of service members. And then when the Crimean War broke out, Davis sent an official commission to observe the conflict and to report on the effects of recent military advances. Interestingly, one of the Army officers Davis chose for that commission was George McClellan. It was, indeed. We've already mentioned McClellan before on the podcast, and we will again, of course, later on, when he's the commander of the Union's Army of the Potomac. But anyway, it was also during Davis's tenure as Secretary of War 
that the army adopted the new rifle musket that was to do such fearful execution on Civil War battlefields. It was also on Davis's watch that an officer named William Hardy was assigned to write a new manual on drill and tactics for the army. Hardy's manual of arms would eventually be used by officers on both sides during the Civil War. And the camels. Yes, no discussion of Jefferson Davis's service as Secretary of War would be complete without mentioning this project, the U.S. Camel Corps. You see, as early as the 1840s, it had been suggested the Army use camels for transportation in the arid and desert regions of the American Southwest. But the idea didn't really gain any traction until Jefferson Davis decided to run with it. And so in 1856 and 57, around 70 camels were procured from overseas, and then they were tested out in Texas. Initial reports were positive, and the camels saw service as transport animals during several survey expeditions throughout the Southwest, up until 1860. But then the idea was largely abandoned, mostly because the Army's horses and mules were spooked by the camels, which is hardly the camels' fault. But it's kind of interesting that after the War Department decided to scuttle the project, the remaining camels were sold to private citizens, but others had escaped into the desert. Wild camels continued to be sighted in the southwest through the early 1900s, with the last reported sighting being in 1941 near Douglas, Texas. Well, it's crazy stuff, definitely. But, to get back to Jefferson Davis... Right. Well, as Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis famously butted heads with the Army's crusty old General-in-Chief, Winfield Scott. Scott, a Whig who happened to have been been Democrat Franklin Pierce's opponent in the 1852 presidential campaign, was openly contemptuous of Davis. Davis responded in kind. Their personal animosity grew so great that it was virtually impossible for them to work together, even over minor matters of policy. Scott referred to Davis as, quote, an enraged imbecile who lays about him in blows which hurt only himself, end quote. Davis responded by saying, quote, your petulance, characteristic egotism, and recklessness of accusation have imposed upon me the task of unveiling some of your deformities, end quote. Really, the entire unseemly drama as it played out didn't reflect well upon either man. It was probably for the best that Davis was in Washington, D.C., while Scott's headquarters were located in New York City. Well, he certainly never got along with Winfield Scott, but Jefferson Davis not only became one of the president's most trusted political advisors, but Franklin Pierce and his wife Jane counted Jefferson and Verena as close personal friends. As a result, Davis became an influential voice, an influential Southern voice, and policy decisions far beyond the normal concerns of the War Department. For example, during his tenure as Secretary of War, he played a key role in brokering passage of the controversial Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854. Jefferson Davis remained as Secretary of War until the end of Franklin Pierce's term. As he left office, Pierce said that Davis had been, quote, strength and solace to me for four anxious years and never failed me, end quote. Davis returned to the Senate in 1857, immediately after leaving the War Department. By that time, blood was flowing in Kansas. The new Republican Party had eclipsed the Whigs, and the once-mighty Democratic Party was splitting along sectional lines. 
Upon his return to the Senate, Davis continued in his role as a leading voice for the South on the national stage. He did not apologize for slavery or for his dedication to states' rights. He objected to Republican positions on the extension of slavery, and he repudiated fellow Democrat Stephen Douglas's doctrine of popular sovereignty as disingenuous and unconstitutional. During his tenure as Secretary of War, and then after his return to the Senate, the Davises lived in a splendid Washington mansion and moved in the highest social circles. An easy and accomplished hostess, Verena continued to be an exceptional politician's wife and a steady support to her often unhealthy spouse. Now, we've already mentioned a few of Jefferson Davis's health concerns. The susceptibility to bronchitis, the neuralgia, the wound to his foot during the Mexican War. But we might take a minute here to expand that list, since throughout the late 1850s and then during his service to the Confederacy, Davis's health was a factor to consider. Because to put it plainly, Jefferson Davis was not a healthy man. At times, he would have troublesome bouts of fever and chills, no doubt a recurring symptom of the malaria he had contracted earlier in life. And then we've already talked about how the extremely painful neuralgia affecting the nerves of his face, ears, and throat would prostrate him for days or weeks at a time. And then people also noted that he suffered from a chronic, sour stomach. In all likelihood, Davis probably suffered from a peptic ulcer, a dangerous condition aggravated by his tendency to internalize emotional stress. A British journalist who saw Davis in Alabama described him as having, quote, eyes deep-set, large and full. One seems nearly blind and is partly covered with a film owing to excruciating attacks of neuralgia, end quote. In fact, it probably wasn't actually caused by neuralgia, but Davis had suffered painful eye problems for years, and in 1859, had unsuccessful surgery on the especially troublesome left one. After that, as a film covered the eye, he could see only light and darkness, but could no longer distinguish objects with it. Well, needless to say, these recurring medical problems took a steady toll on Davis's well-being, and during his time as president of the Confederacy, although it's impossible to know for certain, it's hard not to imagine that at times... The stress of his political and personal trials, combined with his physical troubles, especially the attendant lack of sleep, would not have affected his decision-making abilities and affected his relationships with others to some degree. By 1860, physical suffering had become for Jefferson Davis a familiar companion, had become a continual ordeal that tested his will and character. Beginning in mid-February 1858, a painful illness prostrated Davis for two months. During most of that time, he lay in darkness, barely able to take nourishment, muffling screams of agony, and able to communicate only through a writing tablet. We bring up this protracted illness because while Davis had several regular visitors that would stop by and show their concern and help him pass through his ordeal, there was one visitor in particular that caught our attention. In his book, Jefferson Davis, American, William Cooper explains that, quote, From the other side of the partisan aisle and the opposite end of the sectional spectrum, Republican Senator William Henry Seward of New York appeared for an hour every day. According to Verena, Senator Seward brought news of congressional proceedings and made every effort to build the patient's spirits. 
Even in the aftermath of 1865, Verena commented on Seward's earnest, tender interest, which she believed unmistakably genuine. End quote. In fact, Seward's concern during that terrible illness in 1858 obviously made a lasting impression on both Jefferson and Verena, since even through the war and afterward, neither would ever refer to Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of State with any animosity or ill will. Anticipating a Republican victory in the upcoming presidential election, Davis submitted resolutions to the Senate in February 1860 calling on Congress to enact legislation to protect all citizens from, quote, unfriendly legislation, end quote. This unsuccessful measure was obviously meant to protect Southerners against any radical abolitionist legislation. That same month, Davis stated his belief that a government controlled by, quote, a party based on sectional conflict could scarcely fail to engender collisions between the state and federal authorities, end quote. When his fears were realized with Lincoln's election in November, Davis agreed to serve, along with Seward, on the Committee of Thirteen, a special Senate committee composed of Republicans and Democrats, Northerners and Southerners, convened in December to look for a compromise settlement that would defuse the growing crisis that gripped the country as secession fever swept across the South. But just a week before he was asked to sit on the committee, Davis had added his name to a public pronouncement that read, quote, All hope of relief in the Union is extinguished. We are satisfied the honor, the safety, and independence of the Southern people require the organization of a Southern Confederacy, end quote. So needless to say, the Committee of Thirteen's efforts to avert disunion were in vain. During the secession winter of 1860-1861, the politics of compromise were now taking a back seat to the politics of confrontation. Jefferson Davis was the last of the Mississippi congressional delegation to leave Washington. Depressed in spirit and sick in body, Davis confessed to Franklin Pierce his deep sorrow at the dissolution of the Union. He said, quote, Civil war has only horror for me, but whatever circumstances demand shall be met as a duty. End quote. Davis was sick in bed for a week, but then on January 21, 1861, he rallied and delivered a much anticipated farewell address to a packed Senate chamber. He spoke of the right of secession, his vital bond to Mississippi, and of his wish for continued peaceful relations with his congressional colleagues. He concluded his six-minute address by declaring, quote, In the course of my service here, associated at different times with a great variety of senators, I see now around me some with whom I have served long. There have been points of collision, but whatever of offense there has been to me, I leave here. I carry with me no hostile remembrance. Whatever offense I have given which has not been redressed or for which satisfaction has not been demanded, I have, Senators, in this hour of our parting, to offer you my apology for any pain which, in the heat of discussion, I have inflicted. I go hence unencumbered of the remembrance of any injury received, and having discharged the duty of making the only reparation in my power for any injury offered. Mr. President and Senators, having made the announcement which the occasion seemed to me to require, it only remains to me to bid you a final adieu. End quote. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Jefferson Davis did not join the meeting of delegates from the seceded states in Montgomery, Alabama on February 4th, 1861. He suspected that he might be considered for president of the new Southern Confederation, but he told one of the delegates, quote, The post of president of the provisional government is one of great responsibility and difficulty. I have no confidence in my ability to meet its requirements. I think I could perform the function of general, end quote. Now, Jefferson Davis was an ambitious man, but in this regard, he probably hoped quite sincerely that his wishes would be made known at the Montgomery Convention and honored. But it was not to be. Davis was in the garden of Briarfield helping Verena with some rose cuttings when the messenger arrived. Maury Klein, in his excellent book, Days of Defiance, paints the scene for us. Quote, Verena watched him read the telegram, saw his features register a profound grief that suggested bad news about some member of the family. After a painful silence, Davis said he had been elected president and must go at once to Montgomery. His face was wreathed in gloom. He longed to lead the army, not the government. That was the role he saw for himself. Verena knew his preference and thought him more suited to the army. As a party manager, he would not succeed, she admitted bluntly. He did not know the arts of the politician and would not practice them if he understood. End quote. Davis had not sought the presidency of the new Southern government, but now duty called, and he must obey. In his inaugural address, Davis forecasted, quote, You will see many errors to forgive, many deficiencies to tolerate, but you shall not find in me either a want of zeal or fidelity to the cause, end quote. And indeed, over the next four years, Jefferson Davis manifested the personality traits, abilities, and flaws that Verena had always seen in him all too clearly. Turning to Maury Klein again, we find this assessment of the new president of the Confederate States of America. Quote, he was in many respects the reflection of the chivalry that had chosen him. His tall, thin, lean figure exuded the dignity and pride of aristocracy. The habit of command came easily to him, as did gallantry and courtesy to those who did not oppose his will. A polished veneer of intellect and manners concealed the passion raging within. 
An unwavering sense of righteousness made him imperious and intolerant of those who disagreed with him. He was earnest and sincere, devoted to duty and principle in a high-minded, humorless manner. Nowhere in his character was there evidence of flexibility or growth. He was what he had been since Knox's death. End quote. During the euphoria that surrounded the formation of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis's positive attributes were emphasized. He was honest, personally courageous, resolute, and completely devoted to duty as he understood it. People also naturally pointed out his West Point education and his military experience. But there were also aspects of Davis's character that boded less well for his leadership of his new country through the perilous days ahead. He could be proud. He found it difficult to admit he had been wrong, which quite naturally led him into attempts to force others to admit they had been wrong. He was not a man to overlook a slight or to handle a difficult personality with gentleness, and he had a tendency to micromanage rather than delegate responsibility to others. These were the aspects of her husband's personality that led Verena Davis to say he did not know the arts of the politician and would not practice them if he understood. And, unfortunately, the Confederate cabinet would too often magnify rather than mitigate Jefferson Davis's shortcomings. For his cabinet, political considerations in the fledgling Confederacy led Davis to choose a representative from each of the original seceding states. Most of them were men he had not known well before secession. Davis would eventually appoint four men to the position of Secretary of State, but the first was Robert A. Toombs of Georgia. Toombs was a wealthy planner and had been instrumental in leading Georgia out of the Union and in creating the Confederate Constitution. Toombs' tenure as Secretary of State would last only through July 1861. Later on, while serving in the Confederate Congress, he would join fellow Georgians, Vice President Stevens and Governor Joseph E. Brown, in opposing Davis's war policies. The Confederacy's first Secretary of the Treasury was Christopher G. Menninger of South Carolina. He was a successful lawyer and former bank director and was chairman of the committee that drafted the Confederacy's provisional constitution. As Treasury Secretary, he faced monumental battles against inflation and also against states' rights advocates who hindered his efforts to centralize the Confederacy's financial management. His fiscal measures were never able to fill the Treasury or finance the war effort. Memminger would hold out until 1864, but then, with the Confederate economy collapsing, he resigned. Leroy P. Walker was appointed Secretary of War on the recommendation of Alabama officials. But from the start, Walker was in a difficult position, since Jefferson Davis essentially chose to oversee military operations and policy himself, and so relegated his secretaries of war to the role of glorified clerks. Davis's personal management of military affairs, along with uncooperative southern governors, many of whom resisted Confederate control over their state's troops, combined with difficulties in supplying the army, all resulted in Walker's tenure as Secretary of War being short and difficult. He resigned in September 1861. Reflecting the difficult nature of service as Jefferson Davis's Secretary of War, by the time of the final Confederate collapse in May 1865, five different men will have served in this position. As Secretary of the Navy, Stephen R. Mallory of Florida was one of only two men to stay at their post for the duration of the war. 
Mallory had served as a customs official in Key West before Florida sent him to the U.S. Senate, where he became chairman of the Committee for Naval Affairs. As the Confederacy's naval secretary, Mallory, with few resources at his disposal, understood the South could never match the North on a ship-to-ship basis, so the best bet at breaking the Union's blockade was through the use of commerce rating and through the development of recent technological innovations such as ironclads and mines. Postmaster General John H. Reagan of Texas was the other man who kept his cabinet post throughout the war. A lawyer and former U.S. congressman, Reagan proved to be a skilled administrator, and by cutting routes, raising rates, and arranging for low railroad charges, he met the constitutionally mandated deadline of making the Confederate Postal Service self-supporting by March 1863. Reagan would be the only cabinet member still accompanying Jefferson Davis when the president was captured by Union cavalry in Georgia in May 1865. And then Judah P. Benjamin was the first of four men to serve as Attorney General. Benjamin, born in the Virgin Islands, became a prominent lawyer, sugar planter, and Democratic senator from Louisiana. He delivered a stirring defense of Southern rights on the Senate floor before resigning his seat during the secession crisis. Davis and Benjamin got along well, and his close working relationship with the president meant that during the war, Davis would also tap Benjamin to serve as Secretary of War and Secretary of State. And although he wasn't an appointed member of the cabinet, I think we'd be remiss if here we failed to mention Alexander H. Stevens from Georgia. As we've mentioned previously on the podcast, Stevens had doubted the wisdom of secession and had voted against disunion at his state's convention. But he subsequently served as a delegate to the Montgomery Convention and was elected as the Confederacy's provisional vice president. But Stevens was soon in open opposition to Jefferson Davis, clashing over conscription and over the suspension of habeas corpus. His strained relations with Davis resulted in Stevens spending most of the war back home in Georgia rather than in the Confederate capital at Richmond, Virginia. Even setting aside the open hostility of his vice president, the membership of Jefferson Davis's cabinet did not compare favorably with Abraham Lincoln's cabinet in quality and prestige. This was not entirely Davis's fault. Only one of his original choices actually accepted the appointment and filled the office for which he was selected. This was because many leading Southerners saw little future in a cabinet post and preferred to seek glory on the field of battle or pursue election to the Confederate Congress. And then, too, Davis was limited from the start in that his six original choices were dictated by the need to satisfy state pride. In future discussions, we'll return to the administration and policies of the Confederate government during the war. But for now, let's turn our attention back to February 1861. So, the Montgomery Convention has set in place the basic framework of the new Southern Confederacy's government. Jefferson Davis has been elected to fledgling republic's provisional president. He puts together a cabinet to serve under him, men who will set into motion the machinery of government. But from the first, quite apart from the formidable task of getting a brand new government up and running, Jefferson Davis faces a daunting challenge. Because despite intense pressure from the newly seceded states, the administration of President James Buchanan has refused to abandon a number of installations that federal troops hold in parts of the South. Jefferson Davis insists that the Confederacy wants peace, 
but it also wants control of all of its territory. That the federal government in Washington, D.C. is holding on to places like Fort Pickens in Florida and Fort Sumter in South Carolina is a source of embarrassment and consternation to Davis and the Confederacy. Everyone realizes that continued federal control of these military installations is a blow to the prestige of the Confederate States of America. And so, as we'll see, it'll be the determined Confederate effort to win control over these isolated Union outposts in the South that will turn secession into civil war. Well, all right. We spent quite a bit of time uh, down below the Mason-Dixon line with our discussion of secession and then the formation of the Confederate government, and now lately with Jefferson Davis's life story. So next week, we'll actually circle back in time a bit to see what has been going on up north after Lincoln's election and during the secession winter of 1860-1861. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Confederate Nation, 1861-1865, to by Emory M. Thomas. This critically acclaimed chronicle of the Confederacy is still what many consider to be the standard history of the South during the Civil War. The 2011 edition has a new introduction by Emory Thomas, and the book remains a highly readable exploration of the Southern political and military experience during the Civil War. You can always find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. Also on the website, for each episode, we usually put up photographs or portraits of the folks we've talked about. And that's one nice thing about doing a podcast of the Civil War era. It's that there's usually a photograph available of your major figures. And uh, also at the website, of course, we have links to our social networking manifestations, namely Facebook and Twitter. Uh, So head on over to the website and check it all out. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We hope you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Our recommendation this time is The Confederate Nation, 1861-1865, by Emory M. Thomas. This critically acclaimed chronicle of the Confederacy remains to... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Whoops.